You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Welcome to COVID Chronicles. I'm Jenny Rudolph. Over the past six weeks, we've teamed up to travel to New Hampshire emergency departments, Hong Kong operating rooms, and an airway SWAT team in France to understand preparations and ongoing care for COVID-19 patients. Then we shift gears radically, and we spend some time in Santa Barbara, California, and Brisbane, Australia, to explore the psychology of self-care for clinicians. And today, we're going to be traveling metaphorically to New York City to explore quality and safety and quality and safety leadership with obstetrician-gynecologist and quality and safety leader, Komal Bajaj. Komal, welcome. Hi, Jenny. Great to be here with you today. So Komal is the chief quality officer at New York City Health and Hospitals, Jacoby. Uh, Jacoby is a level one trauma center situated in the Bronx. So Komal's been right at the epicenter of a lot of the COVID-19 care, including a very demanding surge in New York City. What she brings to this is being trained in obstetrics and gynecology. She's an associate professor of that discipline at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And she's also the clinical director of simulation at New York City Health and Hospitals uh, simulation program, one of the largest in the country across 11 different hospitals. And New York Health and Hospitals itself is one of the largest municipal health systems in the United States. Komal's also an OB-GYN geneticist, so she thinks a lot about the underpinnings of what leads to different kinds of conditions of her patients. And I think that analytical background is going to be really interesting today, Komal, as we dig into patient safety and quality improvement in this really demanding setting. So Komal, starting out as a leader in patient safety and quality in New York City at this time, I can imagine that you have a big job. Uh, you had a big job before, but dealing with the surge, connecting your old policies and procedures and ways of addressing quality and safety with a constantly changing set of personal protective equipment, makeshift spaces, ad hoc teams, people dealing with patients who have pathophysiology they may or may not be that familiar with. Talk to me a little bit about how you've been thinking about that work. Absolutely, Jenny. I first want to start by um, really sending good vibes to the larger community of practice and, and, and honor this challenging time that we've all been experiencing. Um, in thinking about quality and safety, really, I really have to go back to thinking about the background of quality and safety pre-COVID. Um, New York City Health and Hospitals, as you mentioned, is the largest municipal health system in the country. And prior to COVID, we were going through a quality improvement transformation, really anchored on four points. One, transforming the culture around quality improvement and how quality improvement is done. Two, increasing capacity to do quality improvement. Three, aligning our activities so that we're all really headed in the same direction. 
and fourth data-driven decisions. And so while we, like so many across the globe, pivoted immediately with the threat of this pandemic, those threads definitely pull through as we think about quality and safety during COVID-19. Homel, this is going to seem a little maybe trivial and irreverent just for a moment. The things that you're talking about are so well thought out and such an interesting matrix of ways to approach them. And as you were talking, I suddenly had this image of you when I met you in New York City a couple months ago, walking down the sidewalk with your AirPods in, um, maybe kind of shaking your head a little bit to the beat. And I just want to place you in your native habitat for a second. You're in this gigantic swirl, but you've also got to kind of take care of yourself in the moment there. And you've got to connect with your kids, uh, two uh, twin six-year-olds. Before we dive into how do you manage all those four fancy, excellent, well-thought-out quality and safety threads, tell me a little bit about walking to work right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that image of me in, in, in pods is, is something that I do sort of all the time. I definitely like to uh, jam out like many. And I think that, you know, what you're sort of describing or that image that you have, you know, I really think about bringing myself, my messy self to work every day. I'm Komal the mom. I'm Komal the quality improvement leader, Komal the simulationist. Even prior to COVID, I really thought deeply about how do I bring myself to work every day, the, the best parts of me, the messy parts of me. And I think that, um, you know, uh, dealing with pandemic um, and, and really maintaining our humanity means that we all are bringing the whole of ourself to our work as we, you know, unite together to really uh, fight this pandemic. So you talked a bit about the patient safety quality improvement effort as uh, thinking to some degree about building capacity. And I think in a moment like this, simply sustaining capacity is a win. And how are you thinking about doing that for yourself? And one of the things that struck me about what you just said is, you know, your messy self, your organized self, your, your Komal the mom, your Komal the quality and safety leader, OBGYN. Holding the tension among those things, you know, I think it's easy to lose your temper when you're tired. It's easy to not have a sense of humor when you're tired. It's easy to find inspiration in these moments because uh, we're all having to work at the edge of our expertise and possibly definitional moments of our career. Where are you finding the capacity? How are you sustaining your capacity? Yeah, you know, I have to say that, you know, I, I've never been prouder to be in healthcare than right now. And I feel very lucky to be a healthcare leader. It's not always easy. I think that, uh, you know, almost every day I'm either brought to tears or fits of laughter, you know, due to something that's sad or, you know, something that's that someone says that's funny or <laughs> these just amazing, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, signs of humanity. Part of what gives me sort of capacity, if you will, is is um, being authentic because everyone around me is really working to do their best. And uh, in leading through crisis, I think being able to sort of share those elements is crucial to move things forward. What does uh, being authentic look like in this case? When it came to the pandemic, so, you know, our health system has uh, tremendous experience 
uh, with special pathogens. We actually cared for a patient who had Ebola during the Ebola pandemic and have, uh, thankfully, um, that infrastructure. When it came to the surge and leading through crisis, we had opened our incident command center well before the first case in New York City. We had used simulation to really think about what surge might look like. But I think that when it comes to um, you know, bringing your authentic self, it means making decisions with incomplete or quick moving information, right? There are still a lot of things that we don't know about coronavirus. It also means doing your best to communicate in various types of formats what decisions are being made and why. Um, and I think that really lends itself to authenticity when it when it relates to leadership and COVID. Mm. Switching gears, Como, back to this idea of the four strands that you're trying to interweave as you think about patient safety and quality at New York City Health and Hospitals, Jacoby. There's what you do on a normal day, and then there's what you do during the surge. Uh, I know you're also thinking about what comes next. How have you had to switch things up? during the surge? Yeah, like many, um, we needed to pivot in a moment. Despite really some thoughtful planning beforehand, the various permutations of what we faced really could not have been anticipated. And so while we utilized a lot of quality improvement tools, for example, um, process maps or small tests of change, like many, those tools and how we pivoted practice were compressed. So something that might have otherwise um, taken five meetings and several weeks of planning were, you know, really sort of uh, decided and implemented in a matter of hours or a day. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example or two, Como? One thing that comes to mind is as we had to open um, areas of the hospital to serve critical care that don't typically serve critical care, um, even really thinking about how do we safely transport patients from the emergency department to those various areas that aren't, you know, typically used to getting those kind of patients. If, if we didn't have the urgency of pandemic, might have taken some time to get all the stakeholders together and, and think through that process. And it really was um, bringing a few key stakeholders, talking about it, um, troubleshooting it, you know, one patient learning and then hardwiring that process really in a matter of, um, you know, hours or actually just over the course of a day, because there was such high need to be able to accomplish that quickly. And can you explain a little bit how you approach that kind of emergent building the airplane as you're flying it um, prototyping process with with the transport. Uh, you know, of course, I'm a simulationist, so I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if they simulated that a few times or whether they just had to see one, do one, do one, do one, do one. Uh, how did you approach it? In an ideal state, there would have been the opportunity to heavily simulate, you know, perform a series of, of PDSA cycles and iteratively learn. Um, I think that in this circumstance, when dealing with such a large influx of patients, that learning was done 
as we went along, mm-hmm. you know, ensuring safety of our patients as we, you know, were deciding, okay, is it a left turn here? Or we were in real time learning. And thankfully, because we're a level one trauma center and because we're situated in the Bronx, we deal with a lot of acuity. And so had have some amazing expertise and minds who think creatively about these things. And we were able to land on solutions um, that were sustainable. That is really inspiring. And uh, I can also imagine there may have been some quite scary moments of kind of trying to do your best and um, adjust as, as you, as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's definitely no sugarcoating it. This wasn't really continues to be a, a, a scary time for everyone. I mean, our staff, our patients, our communities. And so I think by um, doing our best to um, make these decisions uh, together, to really acknowledge the level of uncertainty and scariness around these processes really helped us move forward. Komal, I want to uh, basically check in with you here. I I can imagine two branches we could go on right now. So one is, I'm very interested, as you know, in psychological safety and the role of the likes of you, health care quality and safety leaders, in determining and setting staff-related safety choices emergently. and how to build um, kind of confidence in that process as you go. So that's kind of one direction we could go. The other is, I know that you've been thinking quite a bit about what to do post-surge and pre-vaccine, and then what might come after that. And so kind of get your take on which of those branches seems more appealing at this moment. Yeah, no, um, thanks for bringing up psychological safety, Jenny. Um, And, you know, when it came to those four points that I mentioned, really building a culture around quality improvement, certainly psychological safety, which as Amy Edmondson describes, is the felt permission to have candor, really is the soil upon which any quality improvement uh, interventions can be built. And I think that, you know, when it relates to thinking about post-surge pre-vaccine, which is this challenging limbo time for us globally, where we're sort of constantly thinking about, uh, about sort of when or if peak two is coming, I think we need to think about a new set of PPE. There's been a lot of discussion around personal protective equipment, rightfully so. Um, and, you know, Amy Edmondson describes uh, purpose, psychological safety, and empathy, or PPE, as the software for effective teaming. And I think that we as quality improvement professionals, really as, as folks that are interfacing with healthcare in any way, uh, need to think about um, how do we explicitly define our purpose? You know, it, it sort of seems that uh, everyone's on board and healthcare heroes are on board with uh, caring for patients and caring for ourselves. But I think making that, uh, ex- I think, explicit is really important because that is slightly different for each person. Uh, and then as it relates to psychological safety, I mean, healthcare shouldn't go back to how it was because there were a lot of fractures 
um, and challenges globally that came to light as a result of this little virus. And I think that um, having that felt ability or permission to have candor is exactly what we need to be able to um, not only address those fractures, but really reimagine the kind of healthcare that we want for ourselves, our patients, and communities. And the last is empathy, that sort of shared connection. You know, people have been checking in on me all over the world, and I feel it, and I sense it, and I still, and I, and I have that shared connection, um, really with people all over the world, and and um, you know, really believe that uh, this is a shared experience for all of us. Omal, you've said a lot of really important naming phrases here, and so I want to just repeat some of them. And that's because I think a form of adaptive leadership, as as Ron Heifetz um, talks about it, is naming things that weren't named before. And so you're pulling on some ideas of Amy Edmondson's, giving them a spin from your point of view, but I want to basically recap three things you've said, all of which I think are incredibly helpful for us right now. So one is the idea that psychological safety is the felt permission in the moment to have candor. And that's um, a little bit of a new spin on what I've heard from Amy Edmondson over the years, which is in the past been uh, my subjective sense that this environment is safe for interpersonal risk taking. I think talking about felt permission to basically speak truth to power or felt permission to say it like it is. Uh, is a lovely, uh, pithier, really important thing. So I, I love that you've uh, summarized that for us. The second, second thing you've said is rehabilitating PPE. Um, you know, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, I think people were sort of jumping to PPE like a little bit of a life raft. And now I can imagine, like, if you've been on your life raft out in the ocean for three months, you're really dang sick of it. And so rehabilitating the idea that PPE could have another meaning, you know, purpose, psychological safety, and empathy. I think that's just a beautiful, beautiful summary. Um, And then the third thing that you've um, sort of spun off rather casually, but I think is very important to helping us all conceptualize where we're headed is, you know, there's surge. Um, The surge is tailing off in many places now, but not everywhere. There's post-surge and pre-vaccine with possibly another little bump, like an aftershock. And then there's post-vaccine. And in this time of extreme change, and nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, having those three sets of labels right now, I think, are incredibly helpful. So you've been processing those for a little while now, Komal. and they may have percolated through your brain in some ways. So with those ideas in mind, where are you thinking of heading? What are you thinking about doing? Yeah, thanks for that, um, Jenny. And, you know, I I do just want to say that the personal protective equipment challenges globally are real, and I I don't want to minimize that. But when I think about how we're going to move forward and this PPE of purpose, psychological safety, and empathy, what strikes me is that there are no supply chain limitations for this PPE. <laughs> it's relatively low cost, um, and it's, it's right there for you. 
Uh, you don't have to go to a cart uh, to get it. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that there's something to be said about um, this, this uh, PPE as we go forward. Pardon me, I want to just jump in for a second on the purpose bit, um, partially because I think that's really important right now. And, and although there's no supply chain limits, there may be creativity limits, there may be imagination limits, there may be um, agency, what can I actually do limits. So this is a moment for many of us that is going to be definitional for the rest of our lives, probably for most of humanity. Who do we want to be? How do we want to be? How do we want to care for each other? What are the, you know, big questions in terms of equity, environment, etc.? I'm not going to ask you as a patient safety and quality leader to tackle all of those, but I think purpose is a tough question. Um a a deep uh, deep waters potentially. So what are you thinking about purpose? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, that purpose is something should, that should be co-created together um, with, um, you know, uh, the entire staff really in my hospital. I'll talk about how we might be approaching that. Um, and it's going to evolve over time, I think. Um, you know, and I, and I, want to sort of be explicit about saying that in order to be able to move forward, we really must think about how we heal ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean our staff, our patients, and our communities. Um, as it relates to our staff, I'm, re I'm really fortunate that our health system, under the leadership of our system chief quality officer, Eric Way, um, had established a system-wide peer support program called Helping Healers Heal um, that had access to um, tier three resources such as social workers and behavioral health experts. And so we had that existing machinery, which is really just now on overdrive. And that resonates with a lot of folks, but it may not resonate with all folks. And so having the opportunity to have standing debriefs, some of which you've you know, talked about in, in COVID Chronicles um, is really important. And also other venues. So, you know, we've deployed art therapy, an opportunity to honor those that we have lost. These are other ways of healing because we can't get to the good work of changing how we work until we change how it feels to work. Como, part of what is implied in what you're saying there is one strand or beacon of purpose for us all going forward may be how, how we care for ourselves, that part of our purpose is that caring. And I think that links up to a concept that's come up more and more recently, which is thinking about post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress. And so I might put out there that a legitimate goal for healthcare leaders and um, healthcare uh, communication, education, simulation, all the shuns of us out there is thinking about how do we help people grow and survive in a positive sense uh, here. 
Yeah, Jenny, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's important for us to not just think about how we do our work, but how it feels to do our work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we have a real opportunity to change both. Recently, you tweeted a really powerful um, two by two. And of course, as a social scientist, I was geeking out. I love two by twos. But even for the non-social scientists among us, I think this is an incredibly cool idea, and I think it connects to what you're saying now. So I'd like to give you a chance to unpack it. So you were talking a bit about how do we prioritize healthcare quality and safety initiatives during and after COVID-19. And could you walk us through your thinking here a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just like quality and safety initiatives needed to pivot Uh, during pandemic. Um, Certainly things are not and should not go back to business as usual. And so as we think about quality improvement, um, certainly in this post-surge pre-vaccine stage, um, what we're going to be doing um, as a hospital is thinking about what are those processes, uh, cultures, widgets, efficiencies that were uncovered during COVID that we want to make sure we hardwire? Uh, What are the sort of corollary that we want to make sure we never go back to? Uh Um, And what are some of the things that we just sort of need to think about a little bit more, whether we want to work on them or not? And I'm going to encourage um, all of us to really think about prioritizing those things that not only give us maximum clinical or operational benefit, but also those that promote strongly psychological safety and empathy. And so if you think about a two by two matrix, the ones that do both, we must do. The ones that strongly promote psychological safety and empathy or strongly promote uh, or have a strong clinical benefit, we also will do. But then those that really... uh, drive neither of those, we really have to think very deeply about, are we going to spend our precious energy, headspace resources to tackle those things that don't have a lot of clinical or operational benefit and and don't promote psychological safety or empathy? Komal, have you had a chance to give some thought to um, what are one or two of the must-dos in that? Two by two things that promote psychological safety, but also promote clinical or operational excellence or benefit. And if so, could you give us a little spotlight on one or two? There's quite a few processes that thankfully we were able to unlock quickly. What I'm really excited about is co creating what that sort of list to work on looks like with those that were um, living those processes day by day. So um, in fact, we're going to be talking about this exact uh, prioritization matrix later this week and really surveying our frontline staff on their thoughts on some of those efficiencies that they want to make sure are hardwired um, so that we're really getting the input of uh, many people who were involved uh, in caring for patients uh, during the pandemic. And so some of the things that I I know a lot of people really sort of found value in was uh, first, like Marjorie and Andres have described in another COVID chronicle, the use of uh, simulation for just-in-time PPE training. 
So let me just uh, mention that's Marjorie Lee White, uh, the vice president of simulation for the University of Alabama uh, Health System, and Andres Vilas, a emergency uh, department nurse in the same system. The ways that we were able to draw on um, contemporary training modalities to quickly get people up to speed, whether it was on PPE or, you know, how to deliver critical care meds, uh, for example, are things that I'm hopeful we can utilize even when there isn't this um, urgency of COVID-19. Komal, I have to highlight the fact that you're talking several times today about both process and outcome, or both process of how we develop what we do how it feels to provide care, and the actual routines of care or the actual clinical outcomes. And so if we want to create things that both strongly promote psychological safety and empathy and strongly promote clinical or operational excellence, part of the intersection there is the allowing of voice and input and allowing people's natural sense of commitment and agency to be part of driving that process. It's not just that it's the perfect thing. It's partially that it's a a process that is inclusive of people. Absolutely. And so, um, Jenny, you you mentioned the word agency, and I think it's important to unpack that a little bit. Um, Agency is defined as the sum of power and courage. And power has nothing to do with a title or muscles. It's the ability to act. And courage is um, sort of the emotional resources to choose to act. And so I think that as we move forward and we reimagine uh, healthcare that is, that is efficient, effective, and also feels good for our staff, our patients, and our communities, we really need to think about how do we purposely build agency in our teams so that they have the power and courage um, to not only do the work, but also change the work. I'm so glad you defined that, uh, Komal. I remember the first time I heard you present on this and you were like, I read the word agency and I'm not a sociologist. And I was thinking, is it a travel agency? What the heck is agency? So thank you for, thank you for helping us understand that more clearly. As we move to wrap up, Komal, I want to talk a bit about what might be wellsprings for you uh, as a busy, um, hardworking healthcare provider in a very challenging moment. And um, one of the things that I thought about as I was getting ready to chat with you was our shared interest or in your case, you know, background as a South Asian and me as someone who's spent six years living in India. And and you and I have often talked about, you know, what are the kind of um, echoes of um, the Hindu pantheon in our world? Like uh, Hinduism has so many amazing gods with so many cool powers. Um, We've talked about, you know, Indian classical music. You Uh, have shared wonderful Indian food with me when I visited you in New York City. I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, what is it that you're tapping into, whether it's part of that background or, or maybe something entirely different that's helping you keep going right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for that, Jenny. And, and indeed, I know we um, have talked a lot about that connection. Um, and it really, you know, again, going back to being my authentic self and bringing all of it. Um, my name is Komal, which means soft and gentle in Hindi. <laughs> I am neither soft nor gentle. Um, however, I think that, you know, um, those roots uh, really do impact um, how. Uh, I'm moving forward in this time. I do want to acknowledge that, you know, like many, I've had some dark days um, and it's been really, really challenging. And I think that what really brings me back to balance, uh, seeing people um, have agency to do their work. I think that, um, you know, uh, my children are six years old. And so, um, you know, guiding them through this time and, and a answering their sort of curiosities and questions um, in a way that addresses their concerns, but, you know, is, is um, really a light because they ask such interesting questions. And I think that, um, you know, the, the last thing for me um, is uh, coming back to meditation. And I know that's something that you're fond of as well. And, and really taking those small moments to ground myself um, so that, um, you know, I can move forward and, um, and uh, care for myself and others. Um, and, you know, doing things like this, I will say that, you know, after uh, a period of lull, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to get back to working with collaborators, um, contributing to the larger community of practice, because I hope that people don't see one one hundredth of what we saw in New York. But if they do, I'd like I'd like to have the feeling that um, they were able to quickly or more quickly accelerate because of our learnings. Well, Komal Majaj, uh, Chief Quality Officer at New York City Health and Hospitals, Jacoby. It has been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.